Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Squire Trelawney, Dr. Livesey, and the rest of these gentlemen, having asked me to write down the whole particulars about Treasure Island, from the beginning to the end, keeping nothing back but the bearings of the island, and that only because there is still treasure not yet lifted. I take up my pen in the year of grace, 17, and go back in time when my father kept the Admiral Benbow Inn and the brown old seaman with the sabre-cut fist took up his lodging under our roof. I remember him as if it were yesterday, as he came plodding to the inn door, his sea chest following behind him in a hand barrow, a tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man, his tarry pigtail falling over the shoulders of his soiled blue coat, his hands ragged and scarred with black broken nails and the sabre cut across one cheek, a dirty, livid white. I remember him looking round the cove and whistling to himself as he did so, and then breaking out in that old sea song that he sang so often afterwards, in the high, old, tottering voice that seemed to have been tuned and broken at the capstan bars. Then he rapped on the door with a bit of a stick, like a handspike that he carried, and when my father appeared, called roughly for a glass of rum. This, when it was brought to him, he drank slowly, like a connoisseur, lingering on the taste, and looking about him at the cliffs and up at our signboard. This is a handy cove, he said at length, and a pleasant situated grog shop. Much company, mate? My father told him no, very little company. The more was the pity. Well then, he said, this is the berth for me. Here you, matey, he cried to the man who trundled the barrow. Bring up alongside and help up my chest. I'll stay here a bit, he continued. I'm a plain man. Rum and bacon and eggs is what I want. And that head up there to watch ships off. What you might call me, you might call me captain. And he threw down three or four gold pieces on the threshold. You can tell me when I've worked through that, he said, looking as fierce as a commander. And indeed, bad as his clothes were, and coarsely as he spoke. He had none of the appearance of a man who had sailed before the mast, but seemed more like a mate, or a skipper, accustomed to being obeyed, or to strike. The man who came with the barrow told us that the mail had sent him down the morning before at the Royal George, that he had inquired what inns there were along the coast, and hearing ours well spoken of, I suppose, and described as lonely, had chosen it from the others for his place of residence and that was all we could learn from our guest. He was a very silent man by custom. All day he hung round the cove or up on the cliffs with a brass telescope. All evening he sat in a corner of the parlour next to the fire and drank rum and water very strong. Mostly he would not speak when spoken to, only look up, sudden and fierce, and blow through his nose like a foghorn. And we, and the people who came about our house, soon learned to let him be. Every day when he came back from his stroll, he would ask us if any seafaring men had gone by along the road. At first we thought it was the want of company of his own kind that made him ask this question. 
but at last, we began to see he was too serious to avoid them. When a seaman did put up at the Admiral Benbow, as now and then some did, making by the coast road for Bristol, he would look in at him through the curtain door before he entered the parlour, and he was always sure to be as silent as a mouse when any such was present. For me, at least, there was no secret about the matter, for I was, in a way, a sharer in his alarms. He had taken me aside one day and promised me a silver fourpenny on the first of every month if I would only keep my weather eye open for any seafaring man with one leg and let him know the moment he appeared. Often enough, when the first month came around and I applied to him for my wage, he would only blow through his nose at me and stare me down. But before the week was out, he was sure to think better of it and bring me my fourpenny piece and repeat his orders to look out for the seafaring man with one leg. How that personage haunted my dreams, I need scarcely tell you. On stormy nights, when the wind shook the four corners of the house, and when the surf roared along the cove and up the cliffs, I would see him in a thousand forms, and with a thousand diabolical expressions. Now the leg would be cut off at the knee, now at the hip. Now he was a monstrous kind of creature who had never had but one leg. To see him leap and run and pursue me over the hedge and ditch was the worst of my nightmares, and altogether, I paid pretty dear for my monthly fourpenny piece, in the shape of these abominable fancies. But though I was terrified by the idea of the seafaring man with one leg, I was far less afraid of the captain himself than anybody else who knew him. There were nights when he took a deal more rum and water than his head would carry, and then he would sometimes sit and sing his wicked old wild sea songs minding nobody, but sometimes he would call for glasses round and force all the trembling company to listen to him and his stories, or bear a chorus to his singing. Often I've heard the house shaking, and all the neighbours joining in for dear life, with a fear of death upon them, and each singing louder than the other to avoid remark. For in these fits he was the most overriding companion ever known. He would slap his hand on the table for silence all round. He would fly up in a passion of anger at a question, or sometimes because none was put, and so he judged the company was not following his story. Nor would he allow anyone to leave the inn till he had drunk himself sleepy and reeled off to bed. His stories were what frightened people worst of all. Dreadful stories they were, about hanging and walking the plank and storms at sea, and the dry tortugas and wild deeds in places on the Spanish main. By his own account, he must have lived his life among some of the wickedest men that God had ever allowed upon sea, and the language in which he told these stories shocked our plain country people almost as much as the crimes that he described. My father was always saying the inn would be ruined, for people would soon cease coming there to be tyrannised over and put down, and sent shivering to their beds, but I really believe his presence did us good. People were frightened at the time. But on looking back, they rather liked it. It was a fine excitement in a quiet country life, and there was even a party of the younger men who pretended to admire him, calling him a true sea dog and a real old salt, and such like names, and saying there was the sort of man that made England terrible at sea. In one way, indeed, he bade fair to ruin us, for he kept on staying week after week, and at last month after month, so that all the money had been long exhausted, and still my father never plucked up the heart to insist on having more. If ever he mentioned it, 
The captain blew through his nose so loudly that you might say he roared and stared my poor father out of the room. I've seen him wringing his hands after such a rebuff, and I'm sure the annoyance and the terror he lived in must have greatly hastened his early and unhappy death. All the time he lived with us, the captain made no change whatsoever in his dress, but to buy some stockings from a hawker. One of the cocks of his hat had fallen down. He let it hang from that day forth, though it was a great annoyance when it blew. I remember the appearance of his coat, which he patched up himself in his room, and which, before the end, was nothing but patches. He never wrote or received a letter, and he never spoke with any but the neighbours, and with these, for the most part, only when drunk on rum. The great sea chest none of us had ever seen open. He was only once crossed, and that was towards the end, when my poor father was far gone in a decline that took him off. Dr. Livesey came late one afternoon to see the patient, took a bit of dinner from my mother, and went to the parlour to smoke a pipe until his horse should come down from the hamlet, for we had no stabling at the old Benbow. And I remember observing the contrast, the neat, bright doctor, with his powder as white as snow, and his bright black eyes and pleasant manners, made with the cultish country folk, and above all, and above all, with that filthy, heavy, bleared scarecrow of a pirate of ours, sitting, far gone on rum, with his arms on the table. Suddenly, he, the captain that is, began to pipe up his eternal song. At first I had supposed the dead man's chest to be that identical big box of his upstairs in the front room, and the thought had been mingled in my nightmares with that of the one-legged seafaring man. But by this time we had all long ceased to pay any particular notice to the song. It was new that night, to nobody but Dr. Livesey, and on him I observed it did not produce an agreeable effect. But he looked up for a moment quite angrily, before he went on with his talk to old Taylor, the gardener, on a new cure for the rheumatics. In the meantime, the captain gradually brightened up his own music, and at last flapped his hand upon the table before him in a way we all knew to mean silence. The voices stopped at once, all but Dr. Livesey's. He went on as before, speaking clear and kind, and drawing briskly at his pipe between every word or two. The captain glared at him for a while, flapping his hands again, glaring still harder, and at last broke out with a villainous low oath. Silence there, between the decks. Were you addressing me, sir? says the doctor, when the ruffian had told him, with another oath, that this was so. I have only one thing to say to you, sir, replies the doctor, that if you keep on drinking rum, the world will soon be quit of very dirty scoundrel. The old fellow's fury was awful. He sprang to his feet, drew and opened a sailor's clasp knife, and balancing it open on the palm of his hand, threatened to pin the doctor to the wall. The doctor never so much as moved. He spoke to him as before, over his shoulder and in the same tone of voice, rather high, so that all the room might hear, but perfectly calm and steady. If you do not put that knife this instant in your pocket, I promise, upon my honour, you shall hang at the next exercises. Then followed a battle of looks between them, but the captain soon knuckled under, put up his weapon and resumed his seat, grumbling like a beaten dog. And now, sir, continued the doctor, since I now know there's such a fellow in my district, you may count I'll have an eye upon you day and night. I'm not only a doctor, 
I'm a magistrate, and if I catch a breath of a complaint against you, if it's only for a piece of incivility like tonight's, I'll take effectual means to have you hunted down and routed out of this. Let that suffice. Soon after, Dr. Livesey's horse came to the door and he rode away, but the captain held his peace that evening and for many evenings to come.